Welcome to the Foreign Desk Podcast with Lisa Daftari. We are with you live again this week and hoping you and your families had a wonderful Thanksgiving and are healthy and doing well, despite the harsh realities of 2020 that uh, appear to be following us into Christmas and Hanukkah and uh, the new year. Uh, I want to jump right into our conversation this week. This week, we have a very special guest who I have the pleasure of calling a friend and a former colleague who can now give us insight from her front row seat as the Assistant Secretary of the Treasury for Public Affairs at the Department of the Treasury, Monica Crowley. Monica, hi, I want, hi, I want to very quickly go through your extensive bio. Uh, Monica gained notoriety as a political and foreign affairs expert on national TV, including as a Fox News contributor. Uh, she was also senior opinion columnist for the Washington Times, host of the national nationally syndicated radio program, The Monica Crowley Show, author of New York Times bestseller, What the Bleep Just Happened. She's written for The New Yorker, The New York Post, The Hill, The Los Angeles Times, Newsweek, and the goes on and on and on. Suffice it to say that we are in the presence of a extremely accomplished and even more than that, humble uh, professional. Welcome to the show, Monica. Thank you so much for accepting our invitation. Lisa, it's so lovely to be with you. And thank you for that incredible introduction. That was that was amazing. I think I'm going to have to take you with me everywhere I go just to introduce me because that was incredible. Well, thank you. And it's a joy to be here. Well, well deserved. Thank you. And, um, you know, it, it couldn't be a, a better time for you to be here with us. Um, we've We've been through eight months of this horrific pandemic. And had we not entered into this uh, terrible time, we would be inviting you here to brag about the tremendous uh, economy that uh, the, the Trump presidency really provided for the American people, the markets, you know, um, and some, when you look at the markets right now, it paints a, a, a nice picture of where we're headed, um, how we're doing, despite the fact, I don't want to minimize the hardship that the American people are obviously facing. But what I want to ask you first is to kind of um, characterize the economy for us. On the one hand, again, the markets are telling us we're booming, we're doing great. They're not responding to um, you know th this this time of uncertainty and the hardships. But on the other hand, we're hearing something very very different from the mainstream media. So what what is the truth from where you're sitting? Well, things are obviously very fluid. And when I take a look at the, the entire Trump first term in terms of the economy, it's essentially divided into three major sections, Lisa. You have pre-COVID, then you've got the COVID pandemic with the unprecedented response that Treasury and the rest of the Trump administration was able to stand up in record time. And then you have the period we are in now, which is what you're asking about, which is the recovery, the economic recovery period. So specifically to your question about where we are now, things are in a very dynamic uh, situation. We are no longer in the emergency situation economically that we were back in March when we were presented with this novel virus, which nobody had ever seen before. And therefore that required unprecedented response, including what President Trump has described as his toughest decision as president, which is shutting down the booming economy that he was able to deliver through pro-growth policies. He made that decision. And because government then mandated a shutdown, government also then needed to step in 
and fill the vacuum. And we were able to do that with numerous programs, many of which were totally innovative, creative, nobody had ever seen before, like the Paycheck Protection Program for small businesses and so many others, to get us through the period of time where the virus both economically and from a public health standpoint was at its most acute. So now we are past that point and we're at the point in, in terms of public health where we've got therapeutics and vaccines literally right around the corner. And economically, we've also turned the corner. So it, it is true that President Trump before the pandemic was presiding over the longest economic expansion in American history. And now he is presiding over the fastest economic recovery from a crisis in American history. While there's a lot of work yet to be done, we are very proud of where we are. The stock market, as you mentioned, is a great indicator, and we are adding jobs every single month. Tomorrow, we're going to get the November jobs report. But all of that being said, we do recognize that there are still pockets of this economy and sectors of the economy that need additional support. There are a lot of Americans, long-term unemployed and others who are still suffering. And that's why the conversations about another stimulus are ongoing. Yeah. And I want to get to that, um, but I want to back up a bit. Let's talk about how far we've come and then we'll, we'll, we'll talk about what's yet uh, to come. You, you call it an unprecedented response. Uh, the mainstream media is called calling it a failure. Um, and that's exactly what the Biden campaign, you know, basically came up on. Um, you know, connect the dots for us here. What, sure. Why did it unprecedented? Sure. So prior to the pandemic, President Trump had put into place pro-growth economic policies that delivered a booming economy. And that is indisputable. We saw record growth, record employment, record low unemployment for every uh, demographic, including African-Americans, Hispanics, Asian-Americans, women, veterans, Americans with disabilities. They all had unemployment rates at or below the, the record lows. So he had delivered this economy through tax cuts, regulatory relief, uh, unleashing America's phenomenal energy sector, and achieving fairer, more reciprocal trade deals, including phase one with China, including bilateral agreements with Japan and South Korea and others. And of course, the USMCA with Canada and Mexico, which kicked in this July 1st, which is having huge benefits to America's workers, businesses, ranchers, farmers, fishermen, and so on. So with all of those policies in place, we were really chugging along with great growth and, and great dynamism in the economy. And then, of course, early March hit with the advent of the coronavirus. And what I'd like to, to remember and remind people of is that this was a novel coronavirus. In other words, nobody had ever seen this particular virus before. So nobody knew how it was going to behave. Was this the Ebola virus where you're dead in like 72 hours or was this a more severe flu or something in between? Nobody knew. So we had to take drastic measures before we could get a handle on the public health aspect of what we were dealing with. That required, as I said, the shutdown of the economy. That also then required the unprecedented response. That means that we had a series from, from early March to late March, a series of three 
major pieces of legislation all passed with huge bipartisan support in Congress. You had an initial CARES package, um, which was several billions of dollars, clearly not gonna be enough as, as a week or two uh, went by. We had a second piece of legislation passed around March 17th or so called Families First. Mm -hmm. And then it was quickly evident that we were gonna need a lot more because we saw what was happening in Western Europe, China's economy was falling apart, et cetera. So that brought us the CARES Act, which was passed in the U.S. Senate by 96 to zero, which in this era, Lisa, of incredibly hyper-partisanship, to get anything passed in a bipartisan way like that was a right. testament to both the bill and the negotiators, including my boss, Secretary Mnuchin. In the CARES Act, we had all kinds of unprecedented and historic programs, including economic stimulus payments. We sent out via Treasury and the IRS about 160 million payments in record time within the space of just a few weeks to get cash right into the American people's hands. We stood up the Paycheck Protection Program for small businesses, which is essentially a grant program. Nobody had ever seen that before. We were able to keep about 51 million Americans tied to or connected to their small business employers and their health insurance. That came out of thin air. That was just an incredibly innovative policy that we came up with and executed with the SBA. We did about $150 billion in state, local, and tribal government grants to deal with COVID-related expenses. We did the payroll support program for airlines because they employ tens of thousands of people from pilots to flight attendants to mechanics. We did that as a loan program for all of the airlines that decided to participate. And we did so many other things, including working with the Federal Reserve to stand up the unique 13-3 emergency lending facilities as well. All of which, when, they, when there were issues involved that were brought to our attention, we moved with record speed to address those issues. Our main goal was making sure that the American worker, American businesses and American families had what they needed to bridge this period of time. We're hearing um, reports, speaking of which, um, you, you know, all of the stimulus uh, packages that you spoke of, um, 700,000, this report came out this morning, so 700,000 more people filing for unemployment. Um, these are the numbers that people are seeing overshadowing many of the accomplishments that you just listed. And unfortunately, you know, it goes forward and, and, and it's getting more and more real. And um, what can you tell us about the next stimulus? You know, what's coming? What can the, the American people uh, rely on going forward? So this virus, unfortunately, has proven to be resilient, and governors across the country have had throughout this crisis great discretion in terms of right. lockdowns or putting putting reopenings on pause, and that has had a big impact, particularly in certain areas of the country, on the overall American right. economy. But everybody wanted to err on the side of public health and, and safety and so on, of course. Right. So what we have seen with these programs is... Um, incredible success in terms of keeping vast swaths of the American labor force connected to their employer and their health insurance. That doesn't mean that it was 100% because 
it, again, nobody had ever seen this before. So we really did an extraordinary job in an unprecedented situation with payroll support for airlines, um, the paycheck support, uh, uh, payroll protection program for small businesses, which we were able to do loans turning into grants for about 5.2 million small businesses across the country. Again, in record time, very proud of that. And then the economic stimulus payments and an array of other uh, programs that we were able to get up and running lickety split. Now, since April, since the end of April, so May 1st, we have been able to put back to work, Lisa, about 12.3 million Americans. That is quite extraordinary. And again, tomorrow we'll get the November jobs report. And while it looks like the rate of hiring is starting to slow, it's nowhere near about the 5 million Americans we saw go back to work in, in June, um, it's still on the positive side. So you are still seeing growth and expansion. The problem is that we still have about 10 million Americans that remain out of work. And that's what you're citing. That's why the president and his economic team, including Secretary Mnuchin, have been so intent on getting another stimulus bill through to help these Americans, particularly the long-term unemployed. And so we are still focused on that. The president has said early and often that his sole focus is getting every American back to work. And when can we expect that, the next stimulus? It's a good question. Um, my boss, Secretary Mnuchin, has been leading the negotiations along with Chief of Staff Mark Meadows since early August. And unfortunately, um, the Democratic leadership in Congress hasn't really been willing to, to meet us in common sense terms so we could get a targeted and thoughtful relief bill to the Americans and the sectors of the economy that need it the most. Um, so it has been a struggle since the middle of the summer to try to get this done. We thought because of the election that politics was, was interfering, unfortunately, mm -hmm. in the negotiations. But now that we're past the election, politics is still there, but the incentive is, is greater on both sides to try to get it done. We have been, we have, stood ready again since like late July, early August to do this. Unfortunately, the Democrats in Congress weren't weren't quite as attuned to striking a bipartisan deal as we have been throughout this. But the president's focus, again, is on getting this economic relief to those who need it the most. And we are hopeful because we are making progress. Lisa, we're hopeful that we can get this done in the next week or so. Oh, fingers crossed. That sounds wonderful. Um, Speaking of, of those who need it the most, a lot of focus is on small businesses that have, that have been just obliterated uh, during this time. Is there any uh, plan to try to level the playing field between the small businesses and the big box retailers that have been doing exponentially well? Target, Walmart, Amazon, et cetera. You know, one of the unsung parts of President Trump and one of the great things that he has brought to the presidency is his private sector background. He came into this job at, not from government, not from being a governor or a mayor or a United States senator, but being from being a very successful private sector businessman. And he surrounded himself with also successful people out of the private sector. Secretary Mnuchin is an example of that. So he brought that private sector mentality to this crisis and beyond. I mean, prior to this crisis and, and certainly throughout this crisis, when you mention small businesses, 
He has brought a passion for America's great small businesses, which are, account for about 70% of all economic activity in the United States. So his love of small businesses, his desire to support them has come through throughout his presidency, in particular during this time. The Paycheck Protection Program had two tranches of money to fund it. When it had expired at the end of July, there remained $130 billion or so still in the PPP pot for small businesses. That money is still sitting there, Lisa. So the president has said, and Secretary Mnuchin has said repeatedly in these negotiations, that that money is just sitting there and all it needs is for Congress to turn the key again and get that money flowing back out to our, our small businesses that really need it. There's some discussion of changing some of the terms that setting aside some money for the smallest of small businesses with like 10 employees or less and so on. But we are adamant, we're passionate about getting that money flowing again to small businesses, but it does take an act of Congress President cannot do this on his own because it's a new appropriation, even though the money is still sitting there. So we would like to see that money flowing again. And we have been trying to move heaven and earth on Capitol Hill to make that happen. Yeah. And, you know, a lot of it has to do with the local local government, like you, you mentioned, um, you know, and, and, and affecting small businesses and, and their um, livelihoods in Los Angeles uh, here last last week. And I know Secretary Mnuchin, your boss, lived in Los Angeles for a while. I'm sure he has some fond and not so fond memories of this place. Um, they decided that they would end outdoor dining. Um, and of course, this affects so many restaurant owners, their employees. So many of these restaurants spent so much money uh, decorating and expanding their outdoor space in order to accommodate or have some sort of, of flow uh, during this pandemic. And all of a sudden, they have to shut down. And um, Beverly Hills fought this and said, you know, we, we don't want our businesses to, to fail. Um, and you know, the science behind it, I'm sure you know, but just for our viewers, um, is that about 3% of COVID cases are related to, uh, to, to dining and, and, um, and, and lounges and bars, et cetera. And, you know, I went on to Twitter the following morning once Beverly Hills, their city council, unanimously passed to, to remain open and to go against the Los Angeles County mandate to shut down restaurants. And, you know, the, these tweets are just amazing. Um, I'll read you some of them. Selfish human beings, brats without any conscience. I'm not surprised uh, that this selfish, entitled area of Los Angeles needs to eat at restaurants despite thousands dying every day from an airborne virus. Absolute human garbage people. Another one, we're rich and we want to eat at restaurants. Well, have fun being dead. Um, and another one, Beverly Hills to LA's lockdown. Shut up, we're rich totally missing the point that this was done to protect businesses and their employees and it's being seen as a rich versus poor red versus blue again you know politics getting in the way of us seeing uh straight on this particularly here in california um you know it, it's horrific i mean what are some of the challenges that, that you've faced in the treasury in dealing with the political ping pong game that we've dealt with during this pandemic it has been really frustrating. Um, and by the way, that criticism, I don't remember that coming from their side of things during the massive protests over the summer or, or election celebrations and, and so on. It only pertains to when, when they've got a particular class-oriented argument 
to make. Um, that aside, it has been frustrating because this is called public service for a reason. I, this is being in this job, Lisa, serving this president, serving his agenda, working with Secretary Mnuchin, serving the country that has been so good to me and my family over many decades. This is the honor and privilege of a lifetime. It is public service. It is serving the American people. And the idea that politics intervenes, particularly in a crisis situation where we are here trying to do our best to get responsible, targeted relief to those who need it the most, our fellow Americans, to be hit by a wall of politics and, and not to have, not to be able to get that done in a timely fashion has been incredibly disappointing. Um, I think President Trump has done an extraordinary job. Um, when I look at, at past presidents and what they've been able to do, some more so than others, but I mm -hmm. think President Trump, having never done any of this before he became president, has done an extraordinary job, um, particularly given the, the political dynamics on the Hill and more broadly where we are in, in society and as culture. I think he's done an extraordinary job in getting getting the American people what they need when they've needed it and delivering a booming economy in addition to delivering world peace, in particular in the Middle East. Um, you know, I, I want to talk about uh, you know the, the political game going forward um, in, the, in the next little bit. Um, we haven't seen the markets respond, but what do you think would happen if uh, this uh, Georgia would go the other way, and the Senate would go to the Democrats. Are we going to see a response, uh, an economic response? Well, I think you're seeing strong market activity now because I think the market has sort of built into a certain set of expectations. Um, but if there is, if there is. Um, something that is unexpected that happens, either the presidential race goes back to, to President Trump, or you see the Georgia races go in the other direction and you have Democrats now in control of the presidency, the House and the Senate, I think that you are going to see um, some, some downturn in terms of the economic expectations, and you're going to probably see a downturn in market activity. Right. Um, I want to get then, and I want to move on to foreign policy very quickly, but I want to just get your prognosis from where you are in terms of where the economy is headed. Uh, we talked about past, present, now let's go into the future. Um, give me your one month, your one year, and your five-year prognosis of where we're headed. It's a little tough to do because, Lisa, that the election is still in limbo. So we should probably know more next week when the Electoral College meets and also as these uh, legal challenges by the president's team are making their way through the court system and so on. So we'll have more information um, next week about, about where we are and where the fight goes from here. I think if for the next month or so, while the president is obviously still in office, I think you're going to still see the economic recovery, which again is the fastest in U.S. history, continue apace. We see strong market activity. We're seeing people going back to work. If we are able to get a stimulus package, you will see that jazz the economy um, as well. And then we'll get more information after January 5th when those Georgia runoff races, we've got a conclusion to them. Hopefully, 
by by the evening of January 5th and not February 5th. Um, hopefully we'll we'll have some concrete information there. Um, I think you know with this president, he has a proven track record of delivering economic growth through pro-growth policies. We've enjoyed that growth prior to the pandemic. We're coming out of it now because those economic policies are still in place. Um, and then we will have to see if in fact there is a new president what he chooses to do in terms of the economy. We do know that he had served as vice president under President Obama, and we had eight years of not this kind of growth. So let's see where we are in another month or so. And then I'm happy to come back on with you when we have more information <laughs> about what our government is actually going to look like. And then we can go from there. Yes. And I look forward to it. And I'm holding you to that promise, whether we'll you see you in, in a month or in four years. Um, we will definitely have that conversation with you, Van, very candidly. So I want to move very quickly because speaking of very, very, very unique vantage points, you were on the airplane um, taking one of the first flights between Israel and the UAE um, with, with the signing of the Abraham Accords. This ushered in, I mean, the most unique uh, era for the Middle East. Um, I know you, you have a foreign policy background, so this was, must have been so tremendously historic for you. I know I was there on the White House lawn on September 15th when the, uh, the accord was signed, and um, it's absolutely tremendous. I want to talk about, you know, so I've had a lot of guests on the podcast talk about the Abraham Accords, but specifically um, the Treasury. I know that that you were involved and it's not as, as, as spoken about uh, or, or known about, but Tell us a bit more about how this idea came about to approach Middle East peace. And the reason I say peace, I know it's an economic uh, pact, which is what makes it even more unique and more viable. But what, what, where did the idea come from to go at it or approach it with economic incentive instead of anything else? This is one of the most ingenious things that President Trump and his team have come up with. It is a, an extremely innovative and creative approach to the region. Nobody ever, ever thought of it before. Nobody ever thought it might be possible before. In fact, you have former Secretary of State John Kerry on tape over many years saying, you can't do this, right? Mm -hmm. The Arab states are not going to make separate pieces with Israel apart from the Palestinian question. And President Trump came in, and maybe this is, again, one of the many virtues of him having never done it, any of this before, that he came in with a fresh set of eyes and said, well, wait a minute. The world is changing. We are in the 21st century now. Why are we applying 20th century guidelines and old approaches to these problems that have been festering. I mean, didn't Einstein say the definition of insanity was doing the same thing over and over again and expecting exactly. a different result? Yeah, no. So let's try something different. Why not? And if it doesn't work, it doesn't work and we'll move on to something else. But if it does work, wow, we have the ability to change the region and change the world. And guess what? It did. I was on the uh, trip uh, to Bahrain in, I think it was June or July of 2019. It was called the Peace, Peace Through Prosperity or Peace mm -hmm. to Prosperity. And Jared Kushner had led the charge on this. And it was the centerpiece of the economic approach to the entire region. In other words, take the strategic aspect while still important and set that aside for a moment and take the economics of the region right. and put, make that the centerpiece. Because if you give these regimes economic incentives to change, in addition to the strategic incentive of 
Iran developing nuclear weapons and other weapons of mass destruction, which brought all of the Sunni Arabs together and then brought in Israel because the enemy of my enemy is my friend. You have these two forces, strategic and economic, joining at the same time. What a providential opportunity this president saw and acted on it. And thank goodness for his courage and the courage of the Bahraini leaders, the Israeli leaders, the leaders in the UAE to actually seize this moment. And now we're seeing other regimes that perhaps want to get on, on the peace train as well. Yeah, um, we don't have much time, but what is the future of this deal? I think, you know, you you really can't emphasize how important this is and how much prosperity uh, this will bring for the region. So economically, what will this mean? What countries are next in line and how will this look in the next four years? Well, the president and others have talked about um, having conversations with Sudan, which also has moved toward peace with Israel. Um, Others in the region, perhaps even Saudi Arabia, which would be the biggest of them all, if they were to normalize relations with Israel, wouldn't that be earth shattering, right? I mean, it would just, it would change the region and it would change the world. Yes. Now, the outcome of the election is going to have, I think, some bearing on this, but we are working really hard around the clock to try to lock in the gains of the Abraham Accords so that they are independently sustainable. I think you're also seeing that while the United States under President Trump was able to facilitate these agreements, the dynamics now on the ground have changed to the point where a lot of these countries Um, appreciate U.S. support and are happy to have us there to facilitate. But in many ways, they're doing a lot of this bilaterally, trilaterally. Mm -hmm. And isn't that a refreshing dynamic in the Middle East? It is. um, It's so incredibly organic and um, meaningful. I mean, this is real. It's not just a piece of paper. It's going to mean real trade deals, technology exchanges, tourism maybe a vaccine, all of it. But unfortunately, we're out of time. Monica, we could have you here for hours, and we will. We'll have you back with us. Thank you so much for being here with us today. Such a joy, Lisa. I look forward to the next time. Thank you. And likewise. Thank you for tuning in and to subscribe to our podcast. You can either go to iTunes or on youtube.com slash Lisa Daftari to sign up for our daily top 10 email. Go to foreigndesknews.com slash newsletter and you can sign up there till next time. Thank you for tuning in.